This is the Lotox Life Podcast. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 250. I have the wonderful Jade Miles, author of book Future Steading and uh, proponent for what that actually means as a concept, uh, which I guess in the simplest terms I could possibly put it is living in the now for the future. Uh, So really connecting the things that we're doing now to paving the way for a beautiful future uh, for generations to come. And whether you live in the city or the country, this is going to be a very therapeutic show for you today. Uh, I know the conversation was for me and uh, I think Jade has a lot of wonderful ways to explain quite difficult things quite easily uh, to help us feel galvanised and empowered. Her husband and her uh, run Black Barn Farm. If you haven't heard of it, uh, I would definitely recommend following them on Insta. It's a biodiverse orchard, nursery and workshop space in northeast Victoria uh, that I really had hoped I would get to visit uh, over the last couple of years, but, you know, COVID times. Uh, And it's a real magnet for visitors who want to learn about permaculture, homesteading, as well as picking their own of some 98 varieties of heritage fruit and berries. Uh, And she also has a podcast as well with Katie Payne that I've been on, um, a wonderful podcast, so many fantastic guests. Uh, And They run school programs and all sorts of good stuff. So I definitely recommend connecting to their work no matter where you are in the world. You'll be inspired. Uh, So that show is just about to kick off. I just want to remind you that Walida is into their last week of sponsorship this week. Uh, A huge thank you to them and the wonderful work they do in the world as a big business, uh, being custodians for the earth across multiple farms around the world. You have 20% off all of their Walida products, obviously excluding vouchers, gift packs, promotional items, the use, Uh, and the code is August. I shared last week on the show a few things that I really love from the range, uh, and uh, I also mentioned their new hydrating facial care um, range. So um, what that means is basically helping your skin hold more moisture. Uh, and in a synthetic way, a lot of big brands in the past, I remember when I was in cosmetics, we were all raving about hyaluronic acid in our products to help hold that hydration in. Um, but uh, Walida have found a way to do it with a an extract from the prickly pear cactus. So it's a beautiful range. If you haven't had a look, uh, I definitely recommend it. And making the most of any Walida products you obviously ordinarily might use, 20% off is a big deal. So that's very helpful, uh, especially in times where people might be tightening the purse strings quite a bit. I know we are. So Walida August is your code and walida.com.au is the website for Aussies only this one. Um, That's all I have to say this week. I just want to hook into this lovely nurturing conversation with Jade. I hope you feel a little bit better about the world we're living in as you come out the other side. And I definitely urge you to grab a copy of one of the most stunning books I've seen come out this year. It was an absolute pleasure to read. Um, And if you've made it this far to the intro, I apologize for the toddler screaming in the background. That's our lovely neighbor downstairs who's a grandma and in her bubble is for, um, we're in a strict lockdown in Sydney, is uh, her little grandson and he comes on Thursdays. But I got to get an intro recorded. So if you heard that, I apologize. Um, But he's really cute. (laughs) Enjoy the show with Jade. Hello, Jade. How are you? I'm great. I'm really great. (laughs) <laughs> You're giggling. Are you nervous? I'm, no, I'm giggling because off air we just had a conversation about how I've just done back-to-back interviews and I'm yes. feeling I'm feeling a bit fatigued. But actually, my cup of very woke um, bone broth, mm-hmm. and that's actually the other reason I'm giggling is because it does feel a little bit 
um, like, like it all just kind of fits into a preconceived idea about what I might be like because I drink <laughs> bone broth and herbal tea. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm kind of none of the things people imagine I will be like. That's why I'm giggling. <laughs> I know. I think a lot of people think I'm going to be a certain way. And that's part of um, when people only see a small snippet of your daily life, right? And you think, yeah. I'm pretty sure you wouldn't be interested in the rest. So <laughs> <Yeah>. share it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it does, Trace. <laughs> but no, actually, I really am great. I'm just... Um, a bit fatigued and a little bit rushed because I've come in off the back of my own interview. But well, let's see if we can make this a lovely, relaxing experience as we turn <laughs> the spotlight onto you and your amazing work instead of you interviewing other people today. Um, and I'm just so excited about your book, Future Steady. I was sent a copy recently to prepare for the interview, obviously, and um it's just beautiful, uh, Jade. Congratulations. I think everyone would benefit from reading this little number of goodness. Well, it's not little, is it? It's actually quite quite a chunky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it is quite hefty. It's about 360 pages and um, actually it's not all in there. there there's probably another 10,000 or 20,000 words that I scooped out um, thinking that maybe I might do a follow-up if this one does okay. But... Yeah, look, it's beautiful largely because an amazing team of people have worked around the clock to make it happen with me. And there's some incredible talents in there, not just from my words, but from the artist Megan Grant, who has put all the beautiful um, artwork in it, and Karen Webb, who's put nearly all of the photos in it. So, mm. yeah, these things don't happen with one person making them happen. They are definitely a, a sum of the parts. They absolutely are. I couldn't agree more. And while the initial process of writing a book is quite a solo experience and yeah. quite confronting and bunkerish, uh, the, the point at which you start to bring it to life with the team is, uh, for me, was confirmation why I never wanted to self-publish in the first place and why it took me so long to yeah. put a book out. I was like, this yeah, yeah. is why, because all these people are excellent at all those things and I just yeah. Things. <laughs> I was exactly the same. I started my phone call with the publisher saying, I don't want to do this on my own. So I just, if, if we can make this work, then this would be amazing. Yeah. And it really is the collaborative process at the very tail end is glorious, especially after months and months. I wrote the book in lockdown following a really horrific, um, well, the, the summer of fires. And my husband was away at those pretty well for the whole summer. And my father in law was diagnosed as being really unwell during that time too so it was this awful time that um yeah I was really pretty introverted while I wrote and really really thoughtful and really considered with what I shared and how I shared it so yeah, right, it's a really solo journey and then it kind of gets opened up to critique by everybody that's working as part of your team yeah absolutely and it's interesting that you mention um some of the context in which the book was written because as I was reading through it, I felt um, I felt your emotions come through really clearly, anguish in parts, urgency being uh, um, uh, conveyed and uh, not just lovely, lovely, let's connect with nature, but really like um, quite an arresting uh, call to arms almost, in, especially in the first part of the book. Um, yeah, and, do you mean the preface? Yes, the, exactly. Yeah, yeah, the we are on fire bit. <laughs> yeah, so you start your book with a series of diary excerpts um, from that the horrendous bush, bushfires that closed out 2019 uh, and obviously burnt on throughout the early parts of 2020 for people who aren't in Australia listening to us now to just give you a bit of a time frame of when this was happening. Why did you actually want to start? Why did it feel right for you to start there um, on a topic, I guess, that if you removed it from that horrific experience is mm. a lovely exploration of how we can connect more <laughs> with nature. But I think because of the context from which it was born makes it an urgent call to arms. Is that kind of why you wanted, you just wanted to give it more grit? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. So we have, have been living this life for a really long time and we've been running workshops and events to upskill people and to kind of give them a sense of um, control over the sovereignty of, of the way they live their life. But mm. 
The fires were a time where I feel I, f- I feel like our entire country became galvanised. Mm-hmm. You know, the grief of our nation shook us really, really hard and screamed, wake up. Yeah. And there were also a lot of people saying they need to fix this and, and we need to do better than this and, and someone else needs to resolve the problem. And it really frustrated the hell out of me and made me think, but we actually can't as individuals let the heartbreak the hard work, the fear and the fire in our bellies go to waste and actually now is a time for individuals to come together collectively. And so I wasn't going to put it at the very beginning of the book because it is, it's quite confronting. When you read it, it still locks my throat and makes me feel a bit teary Oh, my and gosh, yes. Sick. Mm. Um, my husband never read the book until it landed on our, our kitchen table and the first thing you open is to this experience of fire and he had a particularly, he's had 14 years of, of being around fire management and um, so it's a part, big part of our life, but he had a particularly hard summer last year. There were a couple of incidents that have taken a really long time to uh, resolve in his mind and um, he read them and said, why have we included such personal information in this book? I said all of it was stuff that I actually shared mostly on social media at the time and it was my way of coping and um, they're powerful and I I think we need to acknowledge that we've got to change. We have to change and really as individuals we've been pretty bloody bad house guests. I say exactly that in the book and that Mother Nature is done. She's our landlady. She's stamping her feet. We've got to to make a difference and, you know, we galvanised as a country and I, I wanted that sense of galvanised fight in all of us to come to life in the book through practical connecting skills. Mm, and how good that it has and um, will for people, especially because if you look at the timeline, we were galvanised and then we were locked away. <laughs> that was yeah, an incredibly <gasps> unfortunate dampening of... Uh, an incredible energy to do something at last. Uh, And I just remember actually not necessarily mourning COVID or even the fact that I was locked down or even the fact that business revenue was down the toilet or even the fact that, you know, just all the (laughs) shit that was happening, excuse my language, um, what I was actually mourning was the what felt like a dwindling opportunity to really do something with the energy mm. that we had at the end of last year's summer. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think your book um, and others who are writing at the moment, and it just feels like some incredible synergies are happening with the books that are coming out that are helping to remind us, no, no, they're holding, you know, you, you and others are holding us to account and really um, helping us stay galvanized. I think. Yeah. And I say in there, I hope I'm not alone. Are you with me? And I really do truly mean that. I feel like it's now time to take that fire in our bellies and do something great with it. Yeah. And were you born on a farm or farming or did you find your way to a sort of calling in that space? No, I was born on only a little farm, a really little farm in West Gippsland where my whole entire extended family are. And so most of them are farmers as well. Um, my old man is actually a, he's an artist and my mum was a nurse, but they were both kind of the original permie set. And so we grew all our own food and we traded what we couldn't grow. And, um, you know, mum made all that clothes out of old curtains she found in op shops. And I'm making it sound bucolic, but um, <laughs> it was actually grindingly hard. Yeah. But as a child who didn't yeah. really have to kind of navigate that and hold that space, it was actually blissful. And my dad, who's pretty eccentric and pretty dogged in his beliefs, can be quite difficult. But um, he he was we were really fortunate in that, you know, he would come into us and he would say, I've got an amazing thing to show you. And we would wonder what the heck it was this time. And he'd whip us outside. And it, it might be, you know, late summer, early autumn, and he would pick an apple. And with that, he'd say, it's time. It's time to pick these apples. We've been waiting. Remember when that rain fell and we wondered how long? Uh, it would take before that blossom was pollinated and it would turn into an apple and now it's time and we're going to sit here with the sun on our back and we're going to eat this apple. And so really little, tiny, simple things were always made really magic. And so I had that sewn in me very deeply from a very early age and I knew 
that whatever time I did in the city for education would only ever be pretty short-lived. And so when my then-boyfriend, uni sweetheart, said, yeah, I can't do this city thing, I'm out of here, I'm heading back up the highway, join me or not, I did. And we started a life up here. We didn't have the farm straight away, but we have always, always had a massive vegetable garden and lots of fruit trees. But um, in our 20s, we had moved to this little plateau in Stanley. We were probably 20 years younger than... Uh, all else. of our friends yeah. yeah oh we were 40 and 50 years younger than everyone else but mm. we did find a few who were 20 years older than us and um we watched really sadly as all of the long-standing multi-generational apple cherry and pear orchards were pushed out and it's simply because there just isn't opportunity for small-scale uh, monoculture farming to be viable in our long supply chain industrial system and so it started a really strong cascade of curiosity and, and discovery and, and really questioning what the food system looked like. And it really set us up to be on a path towards a farming model that took us about 10 years to define and 10 years to find the land. But we've been on Blackburn Farm now for six years. Wonderful. Um, and what do you think... I mean, I loved, as you were describing what your dad did to um, really ensure that you guys felt the magic in those moments, seasonal magic, which was something I took. Actually, I'll share a story with you because you'll love the city chick version of, <laughs> of discovering the magic. Um, and I really think city chicks and country chicks need to talk more. We all yeah, need yeah. to talk more because that's how we actually start connecting to what city people need to connect better and for city people to actually start knowing, oh, my God, that is magical. I do need to connect better. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we don't know that until we all start talking um, more. And um, and I think that's why one of the reasons I'm so grateful for these sorts of conversations. Um, but I remember I was starting to get interested in cooking and, uh, you know, when a, a young Australian woman becomes interested in cooking, of course, a Maggie Beer book finds its way yes. into the, um, onto the bookshelf. And I bought her beautiful book, Harvest, which mm. was a seasonal book. And mm. I didn't really even clock it. And it was sort of reading through. It's the kind of book that you can pick up and open a page and get going. Um, but I remember happening upon this pear tart and thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm so going to have a go at making this. I reckon I could do it. So I head into the new um, little organic market that I had found close by because I was trying to um, head uh, steer our little family into that direction and looking everywhere. And I got up to the front and I'm kind of half pissed off and I'm like, <laughs> yeah, where, are yeah. where are the pears? Where are the pears? And she's like, uh, wrong season. Yeah. But but I need them for this recipe. <laughs> what am yeah. I gonna do? <laughs> and honestly, I was 20, what was I? About 28, I reckon. Mm-hmm. Um, this is quite long into one's life to actually realize that you can't get the same 10 things all the year around. Um, yeah. if you actually start to connect to the seasons. And for me, it was a really exciting moment because she said pears you can get, you know, once April, May kind of comes around again, but you're not going to see them until then. Uh, and I thought, oh, what, what feels like a pear, like similar texture? Nectarines. I guess I could, I'll try nectarines. And so I bought the same amount of nectarines and I got going and I made a nectarine tart. It was amazing. And it was a moment where I realised Mm. Um, you know, interchangeability and starting to be more flexible with what recipes asked of you if they were asking for a fruit or a veggie that wasn't in season, using something else. And it was really uh, fast learning from there. Um, but it was a moment of initial frustration of like lack of supply. And then you realise this is so much bigger than me. And um, and then obviously- well, we've just become so accustomed to this convenience culture that we have what we want, when we want it, for the price 100%. we're willing to pay, that suddenly when um, things outside of our control, like the natural seasonal cycle of food, start to become a reality, you are actually confronted by it. So it's great. It's so good to hear you say that. It's good. City chicks and country chicks should talk more often. Yeah, You're right. Totally. I have- loads and loads of school kids here and we always say that to kids um you know first we say how many sorts of apples do you think there are and the most we've ever had with the school group is 12 and we've got over 100 of them here and there's thousands and thousands of them registered 
um, right across the globe. But what's your favorite say, apple? Can I ask? What's your favorite yeah. apple? <laughs> That's always the next question. <laughs> oh, we debate this furiously, and it changes. I think uh-huh. categorically, it's the mutsu, which is splittingly crisp, really aromatic, huge, quite juicy, and super super crunchy, and it um, is quite a prolific producer. But you know, of course, at the start of the season, a Lodi or a Vistabella breaks the apple drought. You haven't had apples for months on end. So they're amazing and they go straight in the mouth. They don't store, but it doesn't matter. And then as you go, you know, by the end of the season, um, you know, you're eating things like, um, I was going to say pink ladies. I don't actually love pink ladies, but uh, Lady Williams. And they just, they hang once all the leaves are fallen, the Lady Williams are still hanging on the tree like these big red globes like Christmas globes on your apple trees and they're so beautiful that you can't help but love them so my favorite changes as the season goes by but you know we're always saying to kids you know how many apples are there and when do they come into season and you would be amazed by how few kids actually know when apples are available or should be available Mm, yeah should be available is the opportunity unfortunately thanks to freezers and and long logistics chains that you can yeah. see them most of the year in a supermarket. Well, you definitely can. They can be kept for up to 18 months in mm. um, gas sheds. So, yeah. Mm. <sighs> so we've started your book with this call to arms um, and then you start to obviously talk to, and I don't want to go blow by blow through the whole book, but I really just want to focus on the start so that people have lots of curiosity as to what um, comes next and what unfolds and can connect with your beautiful recipes um, and ideas. But you obviously introduced, you obviously introduced the title of the book as um, by giving it meaning and starting to define what, future steading is can you share with us now what that is uh and is it a term that you came across or was it one that you created yourself yeah we cooked it up (laughs) we cooked it up because in short it means living like tomorrow matters um which can mean a whole lot of different things to a whole lot of different people and it can be applied in whatever way you're living your life and the reason we wanted it to be something like that and I say we because it was one of those three o'clock in the morning conversations with my husband and actually just so that it's on the record he actually cooked the concept up but to uh, the very important well yeah. done hubby. Yes. Yep. <laughs> it was one of those things where we had been running workshops for a really long time we've been living like this for a really long time and we were endlessly barraged with questions about how to upskill and people would often say, I just want to live a bit more like you, but I'm never, ever going to have big sprawling acres to do it on. And I would say, but it's not about that. It's actually, you can do this in in a series of pots on your balcony, or it's really about what's going on between your ears. It's it's how you think and it's how you make decisions and it's the paradigm or the lens that you're actually looking through every day. And I think the other thing that so really, it, it's a it's a take on homesteading, of course, but it's got its roots in permaculture. But we were really particular about, um, or I was really particular about wanting it not to feel earnest and not to feel dogmatic. In fact, permaculture isn't either of those things. But I think it has a um, a misunderstood reputation. And homesteading, we wanted it to be joyful and to be fun and to be okay to be a little bit hypocritical and understand the paradox of life you know there are certainly days when I fill up the car with petrol and think I only did this five days ago I do not need to be driving my car this much what the heck's going on but while I'm in here I'm going to get a packet of salt and vinegar chips you know so (laughs) thank you for saying that because I, I really liked reading that in the early part of your book Um, because we all have contradictions whether we're even Mm. choosing the hypocrisy or the contradictions or Mm. whether it's through no fault of our own situation and you know one of them for me is um, recovering from mold illness and being extremely sensitive to mold and re-exposure to mold while uh, in recovery Um, you know you see all of the wonderful zero waste blogs and and Mm. feeds talking about the evils of buying something new like a couch when you could be buying it secondhand if I bought a couch secondhand and it came from a water Mm. damaged building which 60% of buildings are 
it would literally send my recovery back years. And yes. so sometimes you just, and I can't walk into an op shop without feeling like my mitochondria literally all got put to sleep and I will not be able to walk for the rest of the day. Like that's how bad it is. Yeah. And so we all have these contradictions where there are things that we desire to do and be in the world and certain aspects of that that just aren't going to be boxes that we can tick. But I think if we arrive at a place, and you're certainly inviting this with your definition of future steading, um, as you talk about so eloquently in the book, is bring your imperfect self and let's yeah. travel together anyway. Like let's yeah, just yeah. see where this goes. Yeah, and let's do this and let's do it in a way that works for you where you are right now. Everybody is at a totally different phase. I, I, I now grow all our own food and what I don't grow I get from our food co-op that we founded seven years ago. But that is not everybody's reality. Of course it's not everyone's reality. And so it's really important to kind of acknowledge that where you're at and where I'm at might be different, but, I, you know, we're actually ultimately working towards the same thing. We have more in common than we have not in common. So let's walk together. Mm, love it. And and so you, you sort of ask some really piercing questions, I guess, in the first few pages. Um, and it basically helps us take a long, hard look. It's like a stock take, really. I felt like it <laughs> as I was reading each of them and it got me reflecting on different parts of my life. Um, and I'm just going to show you. Know, I had some. a different friend. I had a different friend in mind for every one of those. Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah. And I haven't actually admitted that on, on air to anyone yet. So if anyone of my friends is listening to this, they're going to be like, God, which one was I? <laughs> I love it. So I'm going to read a couple of the questions just so that anyone out there listening right now can sort of go, oh, yep. Mm -hmm. uh, so what if we all acknowledged when we had enough and shared the abundance with others? This is a big one in our hyper-consumerist um, must-have-more GDP success-driven world, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's huge. And understanding you're enough is one thing. Like what, what do I need? What does enough look like for me? And it's a really connected community to three healthy babies who are all now growing up, a really good connected relationship with my husband where communication is open and, and health for all of us and ability to pick my own food out of my own veggie garden. That for me is enough. But then do I live that every single day? Of course I don't. I do my very best to make sure that I'm grateful for all of those things and anything that I have in abundance I share, but I'm also aspirational. So we're building a great big barn right now that's costing more than the money that we've got in the bank, only by a bit because we try and save everything we need for the vision in front of us. We don't try mm. and borrow outside of our capacity. But, you know, knowing you're enough and then actually living it is really empowering. It's not how we exist as a culture, though. And so it's actually pretty a pretty big paradigm shift for people to acknowledge that we actually all are beyond privileged mm, for sure and then another question uh what if growing food was as celebrated as growing dollars oh my gosh when I think of how how hard farmers work uh, <laughs> you know most people wouldn't make it a week uh before they said screw this <laughs> no chance <laughs> It yeah, is yeah. <laughs> tough work. Um, it is. I, I would say uh, the toughest around um, and very high risk, you know, some horrible big storm could come and destroy the year for you or, you know, it's just so many variables. And um, and really under-celebrated. Under-celebrated. There's no but, farmer out there doing it to be celebrated, mm. but imagine they were. I know. I mean, like I have been disgusted by the amount of press Jeff Bezos has received going into space this week. It is actually making me feel physically sick. Um, <laughs> and let's not even talk about the shape of the spaceship itself. Um, but <laughs> that, like, oh, I, <laughs> I acknowledge that building a company of that size takes an extraordinary amount of uh, risk-taking and nous and vision and creativity. Uh, I certainly don't agree with how it grew and the people underneath who were left very much behind um, in terms of equity and uh, prosperity along the way. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, and I think about that story because it is so prolific everywhere you look online right now. And I think about the extraordinary work of some of our regenerative farmers out there mm. discovering methods that can literally save the planet, sequester carbon, do yeah. the most amazing things. Uh, yeah. Where is their basos in space moment? And uh, it's not offered. It's not, it's not offered in mainstream media because it's not it's on the just, table. Mm. No, it pushes the the paradigm shift boundary too far to be ever placed on the table and interestingly though every single one of us eats so it's so intriguing that it doesn't become something that we we do understand more and celebrate more yeah I was just doing a um a, a seeing waste as a resource cooking workshop for a corporate client today and uh, I said you know just one of the most important things we can stop doing is saying what am I in the mood for today for dinner? And yeah. instead looking in your pantry, looking in your fridge, looking at the markets and saying what can yeah, yeah. I make the most of instead of what am I in the mood for? And, um, and I think that's pretty critical to future setting. It's about building a yes, rhythm, a deep so. rhythm that mm. really connects with what's actually going on in the outside world. You know, until, you know, the dominance of Christianity, we had been deeply deeply connected with everything that happened in the natural world and since then we've had this expectation that um, you know we can dominate it we can control it we can curate it and we can uh, rape it for the returns that we need because we are the dominant species but in reality um, we are but one small part of it and it wouldn't hurt us to be a little more humble about that and when you do become a bit more humble and do become more deeply connected to it, whether it be through your hands in the dirt or, you know, the meditation session that you take in the afternoon or whatever it is that works for you, you develop really incredibly powerful rhythms and rituals across the entire anim. And I talk about that all the way through the book. I, I, the second part of the book, there's lots of, I have six seasons in here and they do revolve around my growing. Growing food might not be for everybody, but what are your rhythms? Let them reflect the patterns of the seasons that, ha that are happening around us. Let, let summer be for high social interaction and activity and let winter be really inward facing and, and pensive and contemplative and, and planning. And, you know, let it it's kind of mimic what's going on outside because actually we have done that for all time until just very recently. And we haven't actually evolved out of not mimicking what's happening there. So let it take you. And let's see and see where it takes us as a culture. Yeah. And when you say that, and when you give that example of socializing and being really outward in the summer and inward in the winter, it makes me think perhaps no one's an introvert or an extrovert. It's actually about mm. using those different aspects of ourselves, um, magnifying them at different times when it feels right to, and going inward when it feels right to go inward. And there needs to be natural cycles. They're really important. We cannot always have abundance and we cannot always have, um, you know, lots of externalised input required. It just wouldn't be sustainable. So it's yeah. really important that we have these beautiful natural flows. And luckily for us, a year gives us kind of everything we need across the seasons. Mm -hmm. And you say six seasons. Why? So for me... Um, is it yeah, like fashion the, where you have the resort season midway through? <laughs> it's definitely not like that. Or the cruise cruise range, yep. <laughs> definitely not, not the resort or the cruise. <laughs> um, it, it's based for me on exactly what's happening outside with my ability to grow. So it starts with awakening and you kind of, the words I've given them, explain exactly what they are it's it's those first little buds pushing out of the trees and it's the slight tinge of warmth that comes from the sun that wasn't there the week before even though it was out and it's that kind of internal awakening where you start to open yourself back up again to to externalize what you're doing and you're going outside a bit more and you're throwing your curtains open and the fire's not going 24 hours a day it's going just at night and then you move through to alive and you know, that's literally branches springing with leaves mm. that are tumbling in all directions, every colour of lurid green you could imagine, and everything that's growing is bouncing out of its skin. And then into high heat, which actually in this part of the world 
becomes a bit top and taily of the day. You know, you're very busy mm. in the morning and very busy at night with sunset and twilight walks and yoga and activity and friends, but the middle of the day is really hot. So you mm. kind of bunker below shaded areas. And then right um, down. Yeah, in the middle of the day it does. And then uh, it goes to harvest. Well, that's pretty self-explanatory. You're just getting as much out of the garden as you can and preserving it for what you like all your life so that you've got um, winter stores. And then the turning. And the turning is actually my favourite season of all because you, you start to actively notice that you're tired. You're physically tired after a season of being frivolously busy and over, overly worked physically and you start to know that winter is on its way and you'll start to turn inward a bit and you don't spend as much time with all and sundry. You start to just have quieter picnics with neighbours or, or, you know, smaller bonfires in the paddock with smaller groups of friends. And then you really go into deep chill, which is, is the winter hibernation period where you introvertedly ponder what has been and plan what can be. And so you have this beautiful natural cycle that for me is driven by growing, but it could in fact apply to just about anything else that you're doing. So it gives you the chance for rest and recuperation and introspection and, um, you know, recovery and nourishment before you then bounce back out ready for a whole other season of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, something I love that you mentioned is the issue of dwindling long-termism, long-term thinking. And you cite one tangible example, um, which caught my eye immediately in the gig economy. Um, and uh, why is this dwindling one of our biggest causes for concern right now? Um, I think you explain it so well in the book, and I would just love for you to share that with people yeah, should I go find it in the book and read it? <laughs> you can if you want to, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, look, we are now running the Western world and probably the, the entire globe through short-termism because that is the structure in which our political system is based. We're, we're looking at three-year terms and we have this paced, um, white noise-filled existence that is dominated largely by narratives that's controlled by multinational media agencies and it's actually it suits them to have us a bit panicked and a bit heightened all the time but that actually isn't the way in which we're supposed to operate we are human beings we are not mechanized creatures you know we're not actually designed to move as quickly as a car or as quickly as um someone who's trying to get to space it's not the solution we are human beings who are you know, terra firma, we are designed to be on land and to move at the pace that a human was designed and evolved to be at. So it's lovely to think that we can have whatever we want when we want it, but the truth is that it's unsustainable and we extract too much of the services that we need Mother Nature to provide um, too fast for her to provide them at the pace of which we're using them. And so at some point we can either make the decision to slow that use actively or we can have it forced upon us. And so my choice would be to actively decide what I need and to be realistic about timeframes and to realise that um, the pace in which we're existing in the Western world is completely unsustainable for us as, as humans in our, in our mind and in our health and in our culture um, as it is for the world that holds us. And so um, we have this debate a lot in our household because we, you know, we have a lot of people who follow us and understand what we're trying to achieve and that they spend their life saying to us, how come we can't come and pick fruit just yet? Well, the truth is that apple trees take 10 years and by the time we graft them and find the scion wood and then establish them and then train them and then irrigate them and mulch them for a 10-year period, then you can come and do it. And it is a real pushback on the pace in which we think we need to be serviced and mm. uh, to look at things across a longer time frame means to acknowledge that we can only do so much. Yeah. So for us, it has meant we've had to acknowledge really strongly that um, we probably won't achieve what we've set out to achieve in terms of how we steward and regenerate the land that we're on and the trees that we're creating. But our children hopefully will, even if it's not our own. It mm. might be 
children of people we've connected with and they will take the legacy and continue it. And having legacy thinking, I think, is a more powerful position to be in because ultimately it slows us right down. It takes us back to being humans uh, yeah. in, a in a scale that we were evolved to be in. Mm, absolutely. So, so important to start thinking that way. And it can sometimes feel like it's just such a done massive mission and I would yeah. say especially um, probably for country people looking at the cities and going what even is that and <laughs> for city people thinking how do I even connect and become a part of the the solutions here yeah yeah um, I think it's really important that we start to acknowledge that um, our cities which are relative food deserts mm. are actually reliant on us to produce the food that we're producing yet they've got no real understanding of how what mm. why when that food was produced and how it was produced and so there needs to be deep connection between the two you know it was only one or two generations ago that every person that you met in the city had a cousin or an uncle or a, a grandparent that lived in the country and they had access to what that farm, how that farm functioned. Yeah. That doesn't exist anymore. We just don't have that dynamic in place. And so people truly do not understand what's going on outside of the city boundaries. Um, that's through no fault of their own. It's just through urbanisation. And we imagine that by 20, well, we know that by 2050, we'll have 9.5 billion people on this globe and that 85% of them will be urbanised. And so that's a really frightening reality when we know that our urban centres don't have capacity to feed themselves. Mm, absolutely. And so mm. what are some of the initial steps in your mind that would be um, effective for future steading urban nights? In the city, mm. yeah. Well, Katie, my gorgeous Katie, who is my partner in crime um, for the Future Steading podcast, she is city-based and she doesn't own her apartment. She rents. Actually, it's a house. And it's not where she grew up, um, so she's had to really actively forge her community and, and relationships where she lives. Wow, she is one of my greatest inspirations because she, she is doing what lots of city people think can't be done, but she, you know, she swaps cake tins and she swaps vacuum cleaners and she swaps lawnmowers and she really musters up the gumption and she knocks on doors and she says, hi, I'm Katie from down the road. I made you a loaf of bread. We've never met, but here's some bread. Do you by chance have a vacuum cleaner I could borrow? <laughs> and so, you know, or she'll say, here's something I've grown. Feel free to make it. And she said, inevitably what happens is they turn it into something and they often return it as jam or as a pie or, and so begins this beautiful relationship building opportunity where, you know, she's living very much like we did live when we belonged deeply to our communities and she's actively creating those. She's seeking out people who she has solidarity with. Um, she equally grows in her little tiny backyard more than enough to feed both her and her partner and um, I think it's important to know that there's something virtuous that comes from having grown something from seed. You could take a tiny seed and put it in a polystyrene box on your back veranda and as long as it's got enough sun and water it will give you something that could potentially be popped in some boiling water every single morning and give you a fresh herb fresh herbal tea and you know it, it might not need to be anything more than that and it gives you the chance to stop twice a day and truly observe what's going on around you and once you've had the chance to take that big deep breath to start to feel confident to question the noise because there's a whole lot of noise and it's a really um, almost a, um, an, act, an act of activism to observe and to stop and to challenge and to question what's being said very loudly all over the place. But finding your people is a great place to start. Finding what it is that your on-ramp needs to be. For some people it's teaching other people. For some people, it's growing your own food. For some people, it's minimising your waste. For some people, it's stopping driving or getting rid of a second car and getting a push bike instead. You know, for some people, it's, um, you know, minimising the amount of um, food that you buy that you don't know the provenance of. It, it, can, it can look completely different for everybody and it's really important that 
um, people feel comfortable to take this as it suits them. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Um, and it, something you're obviously very firm about is that there are no stringent rules, there's no definitions, there's no protocols <laughs> when it comes to um, sharing what future steading means. But you do mm. talk about seven principles. I do. Yeah, and I do. I don't want to give all of them away, but can you share a couple that kind of bubbled to the surface first for you guys when you were deciding what this framework and lifestyle looked like? Um, yeah, I love the way you've said that, that they bubble to the surface. Because I think, there's always a couple that get you going with an idea, right? Yeah, yeah, there are. And for me, it's probably different for my husband and for myself. And then when I really had to define them, there were about 27. I was like, Jesus, people can't live by 27 <laughs> rules. It's ridiculous. <laughs> this really needs to be distilled. Yeah. Um, but the one that probably comes most intuitively for us is to love local and by that, I don't mean just buy your Christmas presents from the shopping strip at the end of your road at Christmas time. I mean, truly understand what opportunities there are in your immediate patch to get involved and actively. So when we started our food co-op, we got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of members and it was amazing and we rode this wave. And then we realised what was happening was that people were getting on board because it was exciting and joining but then they weren't shopping there because when they came, it was sometimes inconvenient because the volunteers took longer to put the sales through or we were sometimes out of stock because we don't have buying power or it's out of season and so we couldn't offer the convenience. And so I guess the thing with Loving Local is that nearly everything we need is actually right at our back door and it will only become more amazing to suit you if you contribute to. And so, you know, it's that collectivism over individualism it's it's acknowledging that if you want something to really really thrive you need to contribute effort to it as well and so by loving what's right in your own backyard it will spiral out and have this beautiful effect because everybody is doing the same thing um so that one was probably the one that came most strongly um I mean, I can read through them all. It's meeting Mother Nature, celebrating simple, making your place, seeking ritual, creating your clans, saluting the seasons and loving local. And the one that I love the most, my very favourite of all, is seeking ritual because mm. I truly believe that ritual has the ability to rebuild our culture. And I feel like our culture is, I have this beautiful saying that the wings um, of our culture are merely vans to beat the air they no longer have the potential to give us the strength to fly and it's because we've hollowed it out and I find that really um, a bit distressing but equally really exciting because we've got the ability to rebuild this and we can do this together and we can do it now but ritual for me is the is the cornerstone for that and it might be as simple as the morning cup of tea that I have every day before I go walking with a girlfriend to work out what my day needs to look like and it's quiet and it's my own time and the fire's burning or the birds are singing or whatever it might be. Or it might be as ritualistic as we do a great big bonfire with sail in the guts of winter every year with all of our people around us and the kids run around barefoot despite the cold and they're dressed up as ghouls and <laughs> we drink cider and we chant songs and we do a big potluck dinner and you know, it feels huge, but it feels so nourishing. It's without doubt our favourite ritual of the year. And it's it's um, traditionally been done by pagan cultures to bring in uh, an abundant harvest the following season. Mm -hmm. And we kind of limit some of the, the, the pagan detail around it just because it doesn't necessarily suit all of our friends. Some of them are a bit overwhelmed by it. But that ritual, you know, men's circles and rites of passage processes and coming of age um, rituals and, you know, evening dinners as family with different decorations on the table that reflect what's going on outside at the time are really all simple, tiny things but start to slowly embed different practices in the way you go about and navigate your everyday. And I think ritual is really important. Mm. Beautiful. And and so to that point, as we close out the conversation, uh, and I really do invite everybody to get this book, I think you will be better for it by the end of reading it for sure. Um, what 
ritual would you like to invite everybody to start partaking in somewhere, something that we can all overlap in, doesn't matter where you live? What's something you'd like to invite us all to start doing? I would say, and it harks back to what I was saying before, um, and one of the points which I didn't talk about much, which was meeting Mother Nature, in your place, wherever it is, however your day-to-day works, identify a couple of spaces that are largely driven by Mother Nature. It might be your nature strip. It might be the closest you can get to a green patch. But it doesn't really matter. Just find a way to observe it and notice the way it changes. And it it will take you through a beautiful um, process of understanding how it evolves across a year and find a way to let that reflect in you. It might be a bud. It might be the birds that are coming because they come and go depending on the season. It might be the bird's song, time of day that the birds are singing. It might be just observing um, where your watershed comes from. Who knows where they get their water from? Not many of us that are urban-based know that, but really actively seeking that knowledge out. Um, It might be looking for how many different sorts of green you can see in your local park and letting it take 15 minutes of every day to observe them and let that calm wash over you. But to really observe what's going on in the natural world and see if there's a way to connect with it. I love that invitation. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm so happy that your book is in the world. Uh, Jade, I think it's going to be a a wonderful remedy for our times for many, many people. Um, And it's a a very gentle invitation, albeit very uh, arresting at the same time. (laughs) That's even possible, but that's how I felt as I read it. So congratulations. Uh, Thank you. And it's been awesome having you on the show. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And I want to remind you that you can come join me on social on Instagram at Lotox Life or one word or my personal Instagram uh, at underscore Alex with two X's, Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T. On Facebook, you can find us at Lotox Life. Uh, and of course, lowtoxlife.com. And if you want additional support and community around leading a low-tox life, I can't recommend a better thing to do than to come join us at the Low Tox Club for just $49 Australian per year, which is about $29.30 US, about €27 and about £25. You get a stack of club member perks and the benefit of a beautiful private Facebook community. So check out the website, lotoxlife.com, hit the explore tab and you'll see join the Lotox Club as your very first option there. I hope to see you in there. If not, I will see you in our wider community sometime soon. Thanks again for tuning in.